Welcome to Tell Me Some More with me, your host, Dr. Shiva, clinical psychologist and curious human about all things emotions, relationships, connection, and growth. My mission is to help you in improving your self-confidence and your relationships, both with yourself as well as with others, and to increase your awareness around the topics that actually matter in order to live an intentional, fulfilling life. Each week, I'll be releasing one episode that will either be a solo session with me or a conversation with an expert in a different field. While I hope that you find this information helpful, it's not intended to be a substitute for mental health or medical treatment or professional advice. Now let's get curious and help you to have more of the life and the relationships that you desire and so deserve. Enjoy everyone. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Tell me some more. I have Dr. Denise with us. And Dr. Denise, I'm so happy to have you here. So thank you so much for joining our conversation today. I would love if you could just introduce yourself and let everyone know all the amazing work that you're doing and your experience. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here too. So excited to have this conversation. So my name is Dr. Denise. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a private practice in Beverly Hills where I focus primarily on PTSD, complex trauma, anxiety disorders, and mindfulness-based approaches. And the way that I generally work is I combine a lot of cognitive therapies, a lot of our evidence-based therapies, with a lot more kind of holistic and body-based approaches, which the field is now really catching up with that, like we need to bring the body in a lot more. So I'm so excited that like conversations like this are happening to get to talk about. This well, week. thank you so much. As the, I was mentioning to you just offline, how excited I am to have this conversation with you. You are someone that I admire personally and professionally, and you're doing such good work. So I'm just excited for people to be able to hear a little bit about, you know, the work that you're doing and just your own perspectives on the healing journey. So I would love to just jump right in. For anyone who's not following Dr. Denise, you have to on Instagram and on TikTok. I know you're on both social media platforms, but in going as a follow of yours, I see that you talk a lot about, you know, our childhood experiences and how that of course impacts where we are as adults and how we relate to ourselves, which is also something that I focus a lot on and just our relationship with ourselves. And so I would love to share a little bit about what are childhood wounds and what are experiences that we may have throughout our childhood that may negatively impact us. Of course, I know there's many. And how do we know? Like sometimes I feel like people may not know if they've experienced a childhood wound or if they haven't fully gotten something. So yeah, I would love to hear about your insights. Love this question. Yes. Yes. Such a great question. And honestly, something that has been really interesting being on social media because I know I'm going to like circle back to answer you, but you know, a lot of times I'll post something and people really resonate with like the present day experiences of things. And then they say, but I didn't have trauma. Like, how is it that I'm experiencing this? And I'm like, oh, good questions to be asking. So I think, you know, there are really what might feel like more obvious traumas to us. And a lot of times, you know, we talk about those as kind of like big T traumas. Sometimes there's single event, like really intense, abrupt very different than like the normal functioning for a person. And those are so easy to spot because they stand out against everything else. And I think more often than not, and so much of this is like living in a human body, living in this world, there are a lot of smaller T traumas or developmental or relational traumas or wounds that we might experience. And of course, all of that exists on a spectrum. But I think those are the ones that are harder to catch especially if we live in a 
city, a community, faith community, even cultural community, where a lot of those experiences are normalized, right? So even as a child, sometimes you might be like, oh, that didn't feel great, but like it's happening to everyone. It must be normal. And I think the, a lot of times that's where disconnect might start, aside from maybe the environment not being validating around something. As you look around and you kind of compare yourself, like are other people experiencing that? And if you see it across friends and family, you sort of made to feel like you need to just accept that as the norm, that it must be okay. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we often don't catch something, aside from just not really having the education. I think that's the amazing thing about social media now and like all the books and podcasts that are out is people are getting an education on what like healthy attachment and healthy relationships look like, as well as like what unhealthy or harmful experiences look like. And I think the more that's out there, people are really connecting with like, oh, wow, I experienced that. And I'm just now in your 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s going, wow, I experienced that. I've struggled with this thing my whole life, but I never understood that it was because of some of these experiences I had. And depending on the therapy that you engage in, some clinicians will say it's not important to understand where it came from. We can still work in the here and now. But as a human being, I think there's something that we get from understanding ourselves, that self-reflection, and it feels so containing to be able to tie it to something just to have like a coherent narrative and story about ourselves. So some of those smaller T traumas might be ongoing or chronic. I sort of think of them more like death by a thousand paper cuts rather than one big event. And those can be experiences like growing up in a home with an alcoholic parent. A parent who's not emotionally present, maybe it's a parent who's working multiple jobs, doing the best they can, but there's a lack of presence emotionally, physically, of course, can be like more extreme, like emotional or physical abuse. But a lot of times it's more of these kind of emotional dynamics that impact our attachment, impact how we relate to other people growing up as we get older into our romantic relationships how we see ourselves. So if like some of those ingredients that we know are really necessary for secure attachment get disrupted for whatever reason growing up without like reparative experiences or other healthy relationships, I think that's when we start to see a wound turn into symptoms and emotional difficulties later on. So much of it, and I agree with you, like so much of it does come back to our childhood experiences. And I love how you said like, oftentimes it may not even be things that you would have thought to have been traumatic or not healthy, right? Like so often when it's so familiar, I think that does feel like we equate that with, oh, must have been healthy, especially if it's happening to people around us. The thing that came up to mind for me when you were talking about, and I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but like when you're talking about like cultural communities, I think in a lot of cultures, the older or like elders will say like, well, I know best. You shouldn't be feeling this way because I know best. So this is sort of similar to what you're referring to, right? Like, would that be an example of something where it's invalidating? And if it happens repeatedly and the person registers it as that, right? So it also depends on how we register it. Then that could then have a negative impact and we just may not realize the impact until much later. Yes. The I know best and like, don't question my authority, don't have a difference of opinion or viewpoint, but also that I had it worse, which I think is really prominent, especially if you come from an immigrant family or families that just maybe even struggled financially or, you know, all the intergenerational trauma that many folks are recognizing nowadays. And, you know, that to me, like you can hear the even in the older generations, like the need for the validation around their experiences is like, I'm going to tell the next generation how bad it was and that what they're experiencing is nothing. 
But it's those little micro moments, whether it's with a parent or a grandparent, where when you're experiencing something, especially as a kid, and I have two old kids now, I realize they need a lot of support with their emotions. They have so many big emotions. Just you're a kid, like moving through life, trying to understand how you cope with things and deal with disappointments. And you come to an adult to talk to them about that or get support or comfort. And you're met with disapproval, being dismissed or criticism, just shut down in some way. What we learn, especially if that happens repeatedly, and that's the key. One-offs, we're human. It happens to all of us, even the most well-intentioned. But when it happens repeatedly from important figures in our life, we immediately start to detach from our inner experience because we don't have a way to regulate it then. We don't have a way to understand it and it's not seen. So we can't like metabolize it. And those things sort of stay locked inside of us, but it also creates this disconnection from self. And that's where over time we start to see more and more difficult. Yeah, disconnection from self and from others. I'm like, Oh, my gosh, if only we all knew this, you know, it's funny, because now as an adult, I'll talk to my own parents about some of the things that like, just, you know, I think some of its lack of education, right around these topics of just emotions and our own parents or grandparents comfort with their own emotions and all of that. But it's amazing. And like, we know this, but it's just amazing how much can be changed with just like a simple recognition or a validation or an understanding of someone's experience, especially a child. So for someone who maybe is starting to maybe become more aware of that disconnection, or maybe they wouldn't even describe it as disconnection or just, you know, wanting to be able to improve their relationship more with themselves, get to know themselves more deep in that relationship. Where do they start from? Like, what does one do? (laughs) Such a great question. There's so many moving parts to this. I'll try to distill it down. But I think, you know, one of the things that we'll probably end up hitting on today is like so much of the healing process starts with two things is recognition and education, recognizing that something is a wound or recognizing that I'm disconnected from myself and then understanding how that came to be. What experiences happened that led me to like make myself small or minimize my own feelings and needs. So I think starting to connect to yourself, always starting there is to recognize there has been a disconnection and noticing what are the ways that I actually do disconnect from myself. What would be examples of that? You know, I think we see that a lot with people pleasing and codependency behaviors, just neglecting your self-care, which probably every graduate student on some level can relate to. Totally. Yeah, just like not validating your own feelings, which leads to not expressing your needs and then making yourself more available for other people than yourself and how that can build resentment. And, you know, it's sort of this spiral where we disconnect from ourselves. We might even use substances as part of that to kind of numb out and not feel what's there all really stemming from just like a disconnection from our emotional selves emotional spiritual selves so starting with that and then i would say spending time with yourself without distractions which is one of the hardest things for us i was gonna say that is so hard (laughs) yes yes put your phone away i know it's so difficult But there's so many ways to sort of drop into yourself or be with yourself in stillness while still doing something like spending time out in nature. You know, if you're a person who's into yoga, even journaling, right? There's a stillness about those experiences where you're with yourself. And I think that's the biggest like growth edge of this is can I notice myself? Right. And this is why so many clinicians are recommending mindfulness because it's a direct practice to notice yourself. And then can I start to validate 
and own and compassionately relate to what it is that I'm noticing and experiencing. So it's a lot of building blocks and it's something that takes time to build that capacity, even just to like drop into yourself, because a lot of times we don't know where to start. And what I often tell my clients is, you know, when we're working on building self-trust or coming back into yourself, is get out of your head. This is not a thinking process. This is a feeling process. And actually going to the body is one of the best places to start if that doesn't feel too overwhelming to your nervous system. And there's lots of ways to modify that if it is overwhelming to your nervous system. But, you know, think about how quickly your thoughts work and how you can talk yourself in and out of anything. Sometimes it's hard to know what you actually think or feel about something when it's coming from your mind. When you check in with your body and notice what your nervous system is giving you, that information moves a lot slower. It's a lot more stable. So even just starting to familiarize yourself with like, how does my body respond to certain things? How's it feeling today? Have I been like sitting in this awful position for so long without checking in with, am I okay? So those would be some of the places that I I might recommend to start. I love that. What I'm hearing is like having the intention to get to know yourself more and being genuinely curious, like delving deeper, right? So into your bodily experiences, which you're right, oftentimes are a lot easier to be able to identify when we experience those changes. You mentioned self-compassion. I'm a huge proponent of self-compassion these days. Like if you had talked to me during grad school, like (laughs) no way. I would be like, what are you talking about? There's no way I'm going to do this. But I think a part of that was, you know, in my own experience and just in my clinical experience with clients, it's, it can feel not only like uncomfortable, but it could just feel foreign. Like, why would I be compassionate towards myself? Like, this sounds ridiculous, right? And that's usually what I'll hear. Like, is this going to even help? Like, I feel like I'm lying to myself or whatever it may be. But when you say self-compassion, can you share a little bit more about what you mean by that? And what are like some easy ways that we can practice that self-compassion? mindfulness being one way of it, obviously, but what are some other things that we could do? So I'm going to give you a definition of self-compassion. This is like the academic version of it, but the people who trained me would maybe cringe if I didn't do this. So there's really three components. And I share this also because you can play around with what these three components look like for you, but there's really three pieces of it. The first is part of mindfulness is really recognizing that there's a difficult moment or like a moment of suffering. That's part one. And that's like, we have to notice, right? We have to be aware of our experience. Part two of that is what we call shared or common humanity. When we're struggling, it can feel so isolating. We feel like everyone else has got it together except me. I'm out here on an island by myself. So common humanity is recognizing that all human beings struggle in some way, and you are not alone in this. And not with the intention of invalidating or minimizing your pain, but to recognize that it is a shared experience to go through suffering and struggle in this life, even if it's to varying extents. And then part three is self-kindness. And I think that's the part that most of us think about when we think about self-compassion, but self-kindness can be so many different things. It can range from like, behavioral acts of self-care, like the sort of Instagram version of self-care that we think of, like taking yourself for like a spa day or, you know, reading a book outside, giving yourself like the pretty fun things to do. The pretty fun things. (laughs) Yes. The wellness industry version of it. Yeah. Which are still, there's still value in those. Absolutely. But it can range from those things, you know, getting yourself enough rest, feeding yourself a nourishing meal, all the way to things like words of kindness and compassion really speaking to yourself the way you would speak to someone you really love and care about versus like the harsh inner critic that most of us carry. 
that we would never speak to a friend like that, or we wouldn't have many friends. <laughs> yeah, totally. That is exactly actually what I will usually say. Yes. I tell people, I'm like, if you would say what you say to yourself, like you likely would not have people in your life or friends or people who want to reach out to you for support. Yes, absolutely. And then the third part of that is kind of the physiological or like somatic self-compassion. And I always recommend people to start where there's an opening for you. Start where there's like the least resistance or backdraft from it. And we can build from there. And sometimes starting physically is an easier opening for people where you can really explore gestures and postures or movements that feel soothing and comforting to your own nervous system. And all of this is going to be super specific to you as an individual and maybe even specific to whatever hardship you're going through. I love that. So it really can be whatever is going to be most helpful to you. Like what's going to like give you the biggest, I think of it as like, what's going to give you the biggest emotional hug, right? Like the actual hugging yourself. Is it the story that you're telling yourself? And I love the question of what would I say to someone or like a best friend in the same situation? Another question you can ask is to sort of distill that down is what do I need? And the cool part, this is where I like I geek out about this is like, this is where self compassion meets reparenting and attachment. If you think about like, what are some of the things that we know build secure attachment with child and caregiver, it's a lot of the same ingredients as self compassion, right? It's like seeing an emotion, validating it, being consistent and empathic, and offering comfort and care. So it's so cool that you can actually build your own internal secure attachment through practices like mindfulness and self-compassion because you're meeting your internal needs as an adult the way a healthy parent would have as a child. And I know it's really challenging when you've been disconnected from yourself to go, what do I need? I don't fucking know. What do I need? But that's where we build up capacity to really drop into yourself and notice what's here emotionally, physiologically, behaviorally so that we can over time start to build that relationship with yourself to meet those needs. You know, the emoji of like the mind blown. It's like, (laughs) I know this stuff. And yet the way you put it, Dr. Denise, I'm like mind blown. But it's so powerful because you're right. Of course, I'm aware of just secure attachment and ingredients and self-compassion, but also when you connected it to how that what reparenting really means and how we're offering ourselves those same ingredients. Like, wow, like that's such a powerful perspective. That's so true. So going back though, to the person who doesn't know, because I think a lot of times you similar to what you're saying, like, especially when we don't have the language for emotions, right? When we're thinking about what emotion do we feel or, you know, what is happening for us? Maybe sometimes we may not know exactly how to describe those experiences too, right? So it can be really difficult to even just be in that moment or try to figure out what is going on for us. What is something that someone can do? Like, what could we like, and I'll share with you what came to mind for me. Oftentimes I'll encourage people it's like trial and error, right? Like you're getting to know your own needs and getting to know what fits for you and fulfilling that. What's going to fill that need for you? And that could be different for each of us. And so using it as like, you know, I'm going to like practice. Do I need, I'm going to work out. Let's see if that works. Reaching out to someone, let's see if that works. And then it will click. Eventually, I feel like as we get to know ourselves more, there's going to be a self-care strategy or a way of responding that's going to fulfill that. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. It is a lot of trial and error, especially if you like have not been in touch with yourself. One thing that I do with people a lot of times is kind of help them map out the states of their nervous system so that they can just start to get practiced at noticing what does it feel like in my body when I'm stressed, when I'm 
starting to shut down, when I'm really happy and like safe and connected feeling, starting with those. And then from there, moving to when I'm in those states, what's helpful for me. And even people who sometimes are really disconnected, you'll always be, I'm always surprised that there's at least one or two things that they know already are helpful for them. And you start there, start with what works and go, okay, when you did that thing that you know helps you, what did you notice happen in your body? It's like, oh, like I started to feel my breath move again or like my chest felt a little looser. Great, start with what works and then you can build off of that. And it is trial and error. I will always offer suggestions to clients of different things to try. But at the end of the day, even with my suggestions, there's an invitation for them to check in with how that lands for them. So I think you do, you start to discern, you start to get to know yourself of like, oh no, that's not for me. I like these kinds of things or that feels good for my body when I'm in this state. I love that. Yeah. So just mapping, having that clarity and just like the awareness again of what happens for you. And that can look different again for each of us, but what happens for you? What are the signs that are letting you know you're in a state of stress? What's going to be most helpful? I think those are things that if all of us could do more regularly, we would have so much more insight, of course, on like, on what we need, but also on the things that trigger us, right? And on the things that I think that helps us in understanding, like connecting those dots and like the storyline. Yes. Because it's not just like, okay, what state am I in? It's like, how did I get here? (laughs) What happened that I ended up here? Was it like one situation? Was it the buildup of my week? But this is our autopilot. We just like go through our day kind of mindlessly doing everything that we need to do without, you know, we're like cut off, neck down. We don't usually check in until something in our body is like screaming at us to sit yeah. down. You've shared just so much. And I think there's so many things that we can all think about and just consider Im- implementing if it would be helpful. But when we talk about healing and reparenting, is it the practicing the self-compassion? Or are there other pieces to it? Like what, what does that really mean? Like how do we reparent? <laughs> I think self-compassion is a huge, huge piece of it. But reparenting is essentially like, you can do this on your own, but you know certainly it's super helpful if you have a therapist to guide you in this. But the distilled version is like going back to moments where there were the wounds, going back even in time in the memory and remembering and like seeing the younger version of yourself, picturing what they were experiencing. And a lot of times when we drop into those memories as adults with different eyes, we can now see things differently. We see like, I just needed somebody to hug me and tell me it was going to be okay. Or I just needed somebody to notice me or to let me take up space, whatever it might have been. So it's almost like taking that, you know, that like secure person with us back to some of those memories. And yet it's you as the adult and really recognizing what was needed then. Was it something physical? Was it something emotional? And usually for most of us, what was needed then is still what is needed now because we carry those parts with us, even though we're walking around in adult bodies. So once we start to identify what was needed, it is a practice of continually, this is part of secure attachment, like the consistency part, continually and consistently offering that to ourselves and essentially relating to ourselves throughout our day the way that a healthy parent would. Again, whether it's like, you know, let's eat something that's going to give you more energy or let's go to sleep. You know, you're going to feel so much better if you get that rest in the morning. You're like, it's okay to feel sad. Like that was really disappointing. Having those very different dialogues within ourselves feels really important as an adult, but like particularly healing for that child part of us that gets activated a lot of times in our romantic relationships, or even when we're still interacting with family, 
And then I think there's other parts of the work that stem from that is we start to be able to get some distance and see the dynamics of like the adults in our lives differently, what was at play, the intergenerational patterns. And as we do that, we start to see ourselves more clearly a lot of times. Because with these wounds, we might often carry beliefs about ourselves like I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy, I'm lovable. And then when you actually go back to those moments and go, what happened that I started to believe that about myself? You're like, wow, that was just like an innocent child with like a very human emotional need. Like there's actually nothing wrong with you. You just needed somebody to meet that need. And reparenting is also being able to hold the dialectic, which is really hard, that more often than not, our parents did do their best. They did have their own traumas. We're working two jobs, whatever it might have been. and my needs weren't met. And that was really harmful. And the impact. So it's like, even if the intention wasn't that, they did have an impact. And so being able to hold both. And there's, of course, scenarios where there is a parent who's like very abusive. And that dialectic is it's a different process when there's somebody who's narcissistic abuse, physical or sexual abuse. Those processes look different. And yet it's still recognizing and giving your emotional experience space to exist and for your truth to live, which is so much a part of reparenting is my experience matters, and I can meet my needs. And I'm like, okay, like, it sounds like just like that belief, like I am okay, cultivating that sense of safety within ourselves that we can, we are okay, and we can take care of ourselves. And our needs are important. I want to highlight just the all of it was just really wonderful information. But I just want to highlight the piece of just like the consistency. I think so often, our childhood wounds or the needs that weren't met or whatnot, right? The dynamics that we established early on show up for us so often in our romantic relationships, but as adults, and oftentimes we react from that place. I think sometimes we may not be aware of it, but we react from that child who really wanted to be accepted or wanted to be liked. And so I think it's even in those moments, you know, noticing that child that's showing up within us and offering that experience that we needed. I even have this, but I know a lot of people will refer to their a photo of their younger selves, right? And looking to that. I have a photo, I mean, I have different photos, but that is a photo that oftentimes I'll look to when I'm experiencing my own internal struggles, right? Like it is having that reminder of the visible reminder and just the recognition that that part of us is showing up again. And in that moment, we would most benefit from, you know, that younger need that wasn't met in some sort of way. I love the picture. And one of the reasons why I love this is I think when you see like a little version of yourself, you feel so much more compelled to offer something soft and kind versus if you think about yourself now, you're like, get over it. Like, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, and we criticize. But when you see a child, you have compassion for yourself, but you're also compelled to like comfort and soothe in a different way. The other one that I love is just writing letters to your younger self. Sometimes it's a process of like building up a relationship with that younger self. Some people can connect right away and some people are like, I feel very disconnected and it can take a little bit more time to be able to drop into those moments to go, what did you need? What do you need now? It sounds like just like regularly attending to like you then, you now and seeing, you know, what has maybe contributed to difficulties now, but also if you don't have those difficulties, like what are ways that you can better support yourself? Because I think in this day and age in general, there's a lot going on with social media. Like even if we didn't experience those wounds, there's a lot of social media. There are a lot of comparisons. There's just a lot of stress in today's world with everything. And so I would just encourage anyone who's, even if you don't feel like you have those wounds, like, are there ways that you can take better care of yourself that like, 
helps you now, but also is going to help you in the future. Like that's when I think of self-care. I'm like something that's going to immediately support me, but also in the long term is connected to the me I want to be and the me I want to live out and my values and all of those things. I was just thinking of values the whole time you were talking. Wounds or not, I think all of this stuff that we deal with on a daily basis, whether it's from childhood, social comparison, feeling like we need to keep up, you know, be the best at our jobs, have the most followers, whatever it is, it creates a lot of fear. And it creates a lot of feelings of lack of safety in your body, that anxiety, that fear. And all of those things can move us away from moving towards what's most important to us in our lives, because we get so consumed with dealing with or avoiding what's inside of us that we kind of lose connection to those meaningful things as well. So it's like things that your future self will thank you for by taking care of yourself to move you in the direction that you really want to go. Yeah. And if you don't know what your future self would like, like just taking that reflection, I think it all comes back down to like staying still, which can be so uncomfortable at times. One last question, I guess, you know, as someone who, you know, you specialize also with mindfulness approaches, if someone is wanting to start that journey, of course, they can tune into themselves. But let's say they want like more of a formal practice. What do you typically recommend? Or do you have a typically a recommendation? I don't know. There are definitely recommendations that I have. So I'm trained in mindfulness based stress reduction, which is like a structured eight week program. So a lot of my I say that because a lot of my recommendations come from that training background, but I'm also very trauma informed. So I'll give the recommendation and then I'll talk about like the trauma informed modification for if that's relevant to anyone. For anyone who's willing and interested in a more formal practice, starting with guided audio is wonderful. If you can go to a class, even more wonderful. So you get that sense of community as well. But you know, you don't need to start with a 30 minute meditation, start with five minutes, drop in for five minutes, because five minutes, your mind will do a lot, even in less than that. <laughs> totally. So you know, this in some ways is trauma informed. It's like building capacity to sit within yourself. Even within MBSR, we talk about that, you know, you build your way up to sitting for 45 minutes. So start with something guided. If you want to follow a program, that's great. It can hold you more accountable. In these programs, we do, again, generally start with dropping into the body and work our way up to the breath and working with thoughts and creating just like more spacious awareness and also talking about how that integrates into your daily life. How do you bring that attitude of mindful awareness for trauma survivors or anyone who just feels too overstimulating or overwhelming to your nervous system to sit? certainly can start with more movement-based practices. There's amazing trauma-informed yoga programs that exist now that bring such an element of mindfulness into them. Walking meditations, those experiences of bringing that mindful awareness into a daily activity that you're already doing, that can give you that small burst, that small dose of present moment focus. But more than anything, you can still go towards a guided audio, but giving yourself permission that you always are in control of the practice. So if someone's guiding you to close your eyes or move to a certain place in your body, you don't have to follow that. And that's really important, trauma survivor or not. Part of these practices are about us tuning into ourselves and taking care of ourselves. So if you know at that actually doesn't feel right for me to go to that place right now, I'm going to maybe just find a neutral place in my body or a place in my body that feels pleasant. Or I might even open my eyes and ground to something that's around me. So it's not that if you've experienced trauma, it's inherently like, oh, that's too much for you. You have to try it out and notice what happens, but also recognize that whether or not you experience trauma, there's a lot that comes to the surface for most of us as we sit quietly, a lot of thoughts, but you get to decide 
how much, like what dosage basically you can tolerate. And to know that part of, I mean, this is the cool thing about neuroscience. We know now that like we really are building our capacity to tolerate distress and discomfort over time, which has like such a direct relationship to our ability to move towards meaningful things. So lots of different places to start, lots of resources online for mindfulness-based stress reduction, especially here in Los Angeles. We have the Mark Center at UCLA, and there's lots of apps that you can start with. I think one thing I would cautiously say about some of the apps is there's so many different types of meditation that get conflated with mindfulness. And what you want to look for is a practice that's not about clearing your mind or putting you into a state of relaxation. Those things can happen as a byproduct of being present with your experience. But if we're sort of going towards those as the end goal, we often end up with a lot more resistance and difficulties in the practice. So if you can find something that's a little bit more kind of pure mindfulness to begin with, and then as you kind of gain your comfort in your own meditation, you can, of course, expand out to some of those others. Yeah. So the goal is just really being, thank you for that. It's noticing, just like being in the present moment. And you're right. I think so often people will associate mindfulness with relaxation and it can be relaxing at times, but ultimately the goal isn't to get rid of your thoughts. It's just help us to notice them without judgment, which can be a challenge at times, especially That's for you. That's the harder to, part, right? Yeah, the, the non-judgment. <laughs> and I think that even like the feelings that come up when we start to, sometimes we may not even be aware of just that storyline of that inner critic, right? That we have. And so even recognizing that you may have a lot of feelings to the recognition acknowledgement that has even been happening for you. But Dr. Denise, this was so amazing, so informative. I just loved always talking to you. And I feel like there's so many insights that I've gathered from our conversation. So just thank you for taking the time to talk with us and just going through all of this. I feel like there's so much more I could always talk to you about, but this was amazing. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. We'll have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would love that. Um, before we end though, I do have two quick questions for you. I ask everyone these questions and then I would love if you could ask before we end also share, we can find you and share about your course that you have coming out and your resources. So my last two questions are, what is one piece of advice you would give your younger self? <laughs> I know. It's like, I, when I think that, I'm like, there's so many, but what, what is one piece? <laughs> Speaking of our reparenting, one piece of advice I would give my younger self is really that my needs matter. I'm somebody who falls into some of those people-pleasing patterns. And part of my journey has been really still to this day, like having to honor my own needs and meet those, whether it's emotional or physical. So that like encompasses so much for me. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. And what is one piece of advice that you would tell her to disregard? Maybe something that was shared with you, maybe something you just picked up from society, something you were doing, whatever it may I love that you asked this because I was literally just thinking about this the other day. Something that was told to me, many things, but something that was told to me (laughs) as a kid was that to succeed, I needed to be first, best, or different. And in some ways, it's valid advice, you know, when we think about someone standing out and differentiating themselves. But it's just until recently that I've really realized how much that message made its way into my life and has put an immense amount of pressure on me. So I've started to just recognize within myself that even if someone has the same training and expertise that I have, I come at these experiences and topics with my own unique viewpoint and communication on them. So that's when I'm actively working to disregard that. And again, it's like, I'm enough as I am. My, my voice matters. My needs matter. All comes together. 
Oh, I love this. Thank you. I feel like that you're speaking to so many and I'm going <laughs> to, my, my experience, but I would imagine many other people's experiences because there is oftentimes just it's sent directly or indirectly. We've gotten that message that that is the way to be successful or to be on top of our game or whatever it may be. So thank you for sharing that. And so before we end, if you could just share just a little bit about where people can find you, how they can connect with you in your course. I'm Absolutely. so excited about it. So you can find me, you know, all the goodies on my website, drdenise.com. You can also find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, Dr. Denise Side D. And I am in the process of coming out with a course that should be released at the end of this year, hopefully, on compassionate reparenting, basically inner child work. That will be a self-paced course. You can move in your own time. Um, it will have live recordings as well as worksheets and prompts and kind of just exercises for self-reflection to really compile all the all the reels and, and the questions that I keep getting especially for folks who aren't in California, not able to work with me. So you can be on the lookout for that. I also have a few free downloads on my website. One of them is a very extensive nervous system guide that covers all the science, but has some practical exercises and tips and skills in there as well. And a few other goodies that you can check out in that section, audio recordings, other things. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I highly encourage people to check Dr. Denise's social media, her website. And I'm just so excited about the number of people who are going to be just benefiting from that course that you're going to have. So I'm looking forward to just learning more as it comes up. But thank you again for being on the show. And I will hopefully chat with you soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Tell Me Some More with Dr. Shiva. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean a lot to me if you would subscribe, share, and write me a five-star review on iTunes so that we can build this wonderful community and support others in living fulfilling lives. Just a reminder that this podcast and information shared is solely for informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. It's not meant to be a substitute for mental health or medical treatment or advice. If you're looking for additional support in your journey, please seek out a qualified professional. Until next time, everyone. Talk soon.